Chapter Nine, Part Two of The Voyage Out by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ah, there's Mr. Hewitt," said Mrs. Thornbury. "Mr. Hewitt," she continued, "do come and sit by us. I was telling my husband how much you reminded me of a dear old friend of mine, Mary Umpleby. She was a most delightful woman, I assure you. She grew roses. We used to stay with her in the old days. No young man likes to have it said that he resembles an elderly spinster," said Mr. Thornbury. On the contrary, said Mr. Hewitt, I always think it a compliment to remind people of someone else. But Mrs. Umbleby, why did she grow roses? Ah, poor thing, said Mrs. Thornbury. That's a long story. She had gone through dreadful sorrows. At one time I think she would have lost her senses if it hadn't been for her garden. The soil was very much against her, a blessing in disguise. She had to be up at dawn, out in all weathers. And then there are creatures that eat roses. But she triumphed. She always did. She was a brave soul. She sighed deeply at the same time with resignation. I did not realize that I was monopolizing the paper, said Miss Allen, coming up to them. We were so anxious to read about the debate, said Mrs. Thornbury, accepting it on behalf of her husband. One doesn't realize how interesting a debate can be until one has sons in the Navy. My interests are equally balanced, though. I have sons in the Army, too, and one son who makes speeches at the Union. My baby. Hurst would know him, I expect, said Hewitt. Mr. Hurst has such an interesting face, said Mrs. Thornbury. But I feel one ought to be very clever to talk to him. Well, William, she inquired, for Mr. Thornbury grunted. They're making a mess of it, said Mr. Thornbury. He had reached the second column of the report, a spasmodic column, for the Irish members had been brawling three weeks ago at Westminster over a question of naval efficiency. After a disturbed paragraph or two, the column of print once more ran smoothly. You have read it? Mrs. Thornbury asked Miss Allen. No, I am ashamed to say I have only read about the discoveries in Crete, said Miss Allen. Oh, but I would give so much to realize the ancient world, cried Mrs. Thornbury. Now that we old people are alone, we're on our second honeymoon. I am really going to put myself to school again. After all, we are founded on the past, aren't we, Mr. Hewitt? My soldier son says that there is still a great deal to be learnt from Hannibal. One ought to know so much more than one does. Somehow, when I read the paper, I begin with the debates first. But before I've done, the door always opens. We're a very large party at home, and so one never does think enough about the ancients and all they've done for us. But you begin at the beginning, Miss Allen. When I think of the Greeks, I think of them as naked black men, said Miss Allen, which is quite incorrect, I'm sure. And you, Mr. Hurst, said Mrs. Thornbury, perceiving that the gaunt young man was near. I'm sure you read everything. I confine myself to cricket and crime, said Hurst. 
the worst of coming from the upper classes, he continued, is that one's friends are never killed in railway accidents. Mr. Thornbury threw down the paper and emphatically dropped his eyeglasses. The sheets fell in the middle of the group and were eyed by them all. It's not gone well? asked his wife solicitously. Hewitt picked up one sheet and read, a lady was walking yesterday in the streets of Westminster when she perceived a cat in the window of a deserted house. The famished animal. I shall be out of it anyway, Mr. Thornbury interrupted peevishly. Cats are often forgotten, Miss Allen remarked. Remember, William, the Prime Minister has reserved his answer, said Mrs. Thornbury. At the age of eighty, Mr. Joshua Harris of Eels Park, Bronsbury, has had a son, said Hurst. The famished animal, which had been noticed by workmen for some days, was rescued. But, by Jove, it bit the man's hand to pieces. Wild with hunger, I suppose, commented Miss Allen. You're all neglecting the chief advantage of being abroad, said Mr. Hewling Elliot who had joined the group. You might read your news in French, which is equivalent to reading no news at all. Mr. Elliot had a profound knowledge of Coptic, which he concealed as far as possible, and quoted French phrases so exquisitely that it was hard to believe that he could also speak the ordinary tongue. He had an immense respect for the French. Coming? he asked the two young men. We ought to start before it's really hot. I beg of you not to walk in the heat, Hugh, his wife pleaded, giving him an angular parcel, enclosing half a chicken and some raisins. Hewitt will be our barometer, said Mr. Elliot. He will melt before I shall. Indeed, if so much as a drop had melted off his spare ribs, the bones would have lain bare. The ladies were left alone now surrounding the times which lay upon the floor. Miss Allen looked at her father's watch. Ten minutes to eleven, she observed. Work? asked Mrs. Thornbury. Work, replied Miss Allen. What a fine creature she is, murmured Mrs. Thornbury, as the square figure in its manly coat withdrew. And I'm sure she has a hard life, sighed Mrs. Elliot. Oh, it is a hard life, said Mrs. Thornbury. Unmarried women, earning their livings, it's the hardest life of all. Yet she seems pretty cheerful, said Mrs. Elliot. It must be very interesting, said Mrs. Thornbury. I envy her her knowledge. But that isn't what women want, said Mrs. Elliot. I'm afraid it's all a great many can hope to have, sighed Mrs. Thornbury. I believe that there are more of us than ever now. Sir Harley Lethbridge was telling me only the other day how difficult it is to find boys for the Navy, partly because of their teeth, it is true. And I have heard young women talk quite openly of— Dreadful, dreadful, exclaimed Mrs. Elliot. The crown, as one may call it, of a woman's life. I, who know what it is to be childless, she sighed and ceased. But we must not be hard, said Mrs. Thornbury. The conditions are so much changed since I was a young woman. 
"'Surely maternity does not change,' said Mrs. Elliot. "'In some ways we can learn a great deal from the young,' said Mrs. Thornbury. "'I learn so much from my own daughters.' "'I believe that Hewling really doesn't mind,' said Mrs. Elliot. "'But then he has his work.' "'Women without children can do so much for the children of others,' observed Mrs. Thornbury gently. "'I sketch a great deal,' said Mrs. Elliot. "'But that isn't really an occupation. "'It's so disconcerting to find girls just beginning, "'doing better than one does oneself. "'And nature's difficult, very difficult. "'Are there not institutions, clubs, that you could help?' asked Mrs. Thornbury. They are so exhausting, said Mrs. Elliot. I look strong because of my colour, but I'm not. The youngest of eleven never is. If the mother is careful before, said Mrs. Thornbury judicially, there is no reason why the size of the family should make any difference. And there is no training like the training that brothers and sisters give each other. I am sure of that. I have seen it with my own children. My eldest boy, Ralph, for instance. But Mrs. Elliot was inattentive to the elder lady's experience, and her eyes wandered about the hall. My mother had two miscarriages, I know, she said suddenly. The first because she met one of those great dancing bears. They shouldn't be allowed. The other. It was a horrid story. Our cook had a child, and there was a dinner party. So I put my dyspepsia down to that. And a miscarriage is so much worse than a confinement, Mrs. Thornbury murmured absent-mindedly, adjusting her spectacles and picking up the times. Mrs. Elliot rose and fluttered away. When she had heard what one of the million voices speaking in the paper had to say, and noticed that a cousin of hers had married a clergyman at Mine Head, ignoring the drunken women, the golden animals of Crete, the movements of battalions, the dinners, the reforms, the fires, the indignant, the learned and benevolent. Mrs. Thornbury went upstairs to write a letter for the mail. The paper lay directly beneath the clock, the two together seeming to represent stability in a changing world. Mr. Parrott passed through, Mr. Venning poised for a second on the edge of a table. Mrs. Paley was wheeled past. Susan followed. Mr. Venning strolled after her. Portuguese military families, their clothes suggesting late rising in untidy bedrooms, trailed across attended by confidential nurses carrying noisy children. As midday drew on, and the sun beat straight upon the roof, an eddy of great flies droned in a circle. Iced drinks were served under the palms. The long blinds were pulled down with a shriek, turning all the light yellow. The clock now had a silent hall to tick in, and an audience of four or five somnolent merchants. By degrees white figures with shady hats came in at the door, admitting a wedge of the hot summer day and shutting it out again. After resting in the dimness for a minute they went upstairs. 
Simultaneously the clock wheezed one, and the gong sounded, beginning softly, working itself into a frenzy, and ceasing. There was a pause. Then all those who had gone upstairs came down. Cripples came, planting both feet on the same step, lest they should slip. Prim little girls came, holding the nurse's finger. Fat old men came, still buttoning waistcoats. The gong had been sounded in the garden, and by degrees recumbent figures rose and strolled in to eat. Since the time had come for them to feed again, there were pools and bars of shade in the garden even at midday, where two or three visitors could lie working or talking at their ease. Owing to the heat of the day, luncheon was generally a silent meal, when people observed their neighbours and took stock of any new faces there might be, hazarding guesses as to who they were and what they did. Mrs. Paley, although well over seventy, and crippled in the legs, enjoyed her food and the peculiarities of her fellow beings. She was seated at a small table with Susan. I shouldn't like to say what she is, she chuckled, surveying a tall woman dressed conspicuously in white, with paint in the hollows of her cheeks, who was always late and always attended by a shabby female follower, at which remark Susan blushed and wondered why her aunt said such things. Lunch went on methodically, until each of the seven courses was left in fragments, and the fruit was merely a toy, to be peeled and sliced as a child destroys a daisy, petal by petal. The food served as an extinguisher upon any faint flame of the human spirit that might survive the midday heat but Susan sat in her room afterwards, turning over and over the delightful fact that Mr. Venning had come to her in the garden, and had sat there quite half an hour while she read aloud to her aunt. Men and women sought different corners where they could lie unobserved, and from two to four it might be said without exaggeration that the hotel was inhabited by bodies without souls. Disastrous would have been the result if a fire or a death had suddenly demanded something heroic of human nature, but tragedies come in the hungry hours. Towards four o'clock the human spirit again began to lick the body as a flame licks a black promontory of coal. Mrs. Paley felt it unseemly to open her toothless jaw so widely, though there was no one near and Mrs. Elliot surveyed her round, flushed face anxiously in the looking-glass. Half an hour later, having removed the traces of sleep, they met each other in the hall, and Mrs. Paley observed that she was going to have her tea. "'You like your tea, too, don't you?' she said, and invited Mrs. Elliot, whose husband was still out, to join her at a special table which she had placed for her under a tree. A little silver goes a long way in this country, she chuckled. She sent Susan back to fetch another cup. They have such excellent biscuits here, she said, contemplating a plateful. 
not sweet biscuits, which I don't like. Dry biscuits. Have you been sketching? Oh, I've done two or three little daubs, said Mrs. Elliot, speaking rather louder than usual. But it's so difficult after Oxfordshire, where there are so many trees. The light's so strong here. Some people admire it, I know, but I find it very fatiguing. I really don't need cooking, Susan, said Mrs. Paley, when her niece returned. I must trouble you to move me. Everything had to be moved. Finally the old lady was placed so that the light wavered over her, as though she were a fish in a net. Susan poured out tea, and was just remarking that they were having hot weather in Wiltshire, too, when Mr. Venning asked whether he might join them. "'It's so nice to find a young man who doesn't despise tea,' said Mrs. Paley, regaining her good humour. "'One of my nephews the other day asked for a glass of sherry at five o'clock. I told him he could get it at the public house round the corner, but not in my drawing-room. "'I'd rather go without lunch than tea,' said Mr. Venning. "'That's not strictly true.' I want both. Mr. Venning was a dark young man, about thirty-two years of age, very slapdash and confident in his manner, although at this moment obviously a little excited. His friend Mr. Parrott was a barrister, and as Mr. Parrott refused to go anywhere without Mr. Venning, it was necessary when Mr. Parrott came to Santa Marina about a company for Mr. Venning to come too. He was a barrister also, but he loathed a profession which kept him indoors over books, and directly his widowed mother died he was going, so he confided to Susan, to take up flying seriously and become partner in a large business for making aeroplanes. The talk rambled on, it dealt, of course, with the beauties and singularities of the place, the streets, the people, and the quantities of unowned yellow dogs. Don't you think it dreadfully cruel the way they treat dogs in this country? asked Mrs. Paley. I'd have em all shot, said Mr. Venning. Oh, but the darling puppies, said Susan. Jolly little chaps, said Mr. Venning. Look here. You've got nothing to eat. A great wedge of cake was handed Susan on the point of a trembling knife. Her hand trembled too as she took it. I have such a dear dog at home, said Mrs. Elliot. My parrot can't stand dogs, said Mrs. Paley, with the air of one making a confidence. I always suspect that he or she was teased by a dog when I was abroad. You didn't get far this morning, Miss Warrington, said Mr. Benning. It was hot, she answered. Their conversation became private, owing to Mrs. Paley's deafness and the long sad history, which Mrs. Elliot had embarked upon, of a wire-haired terrier, white with just one black spot, belonging to an uncle of hers, which had committed suicide. Animals do commit suicide, she sighed, as if she asserted a painful fact. 
couldn't we explore the town this evening mr venning suggested my aunt susan began you deserve a holiday he said you're always doing things for other people but that's my life she said under cover of refilling the teapot that's no one's life he returned no young person's you'll come i should like to come she murmured at this moment mrs elliot looked up and exclaimed oh hugh he's bringing someone she added he would like some tea said mrs paley susan run and get some cups there are the two young men we're thirsting for tea said mr elliot you know mr ambrose hilda we met on the hill he dragged me in said ridley or i should have been ashamed i'm dusty and dirty and disagreeable he pointed to his boots which were white with dust while a dejected flower drooping in his buttonhole like an exhausted animal over a gate added to the effect of length and untidiness he was introduced to the others mr hewitt and mr hurst brought chairs and tea began again susan pouring cascades of water from pot to pot always cheerfully and with the competence of long use my wife's brother ridley explained to hilda whom he failed to remember has a house here which he has lent us i was sitting on a rock thinking of nothing at all when elliot started up like a fairy in a pantomime our chicken got into the salt hewitt said dolefully to susan nor is it true that bananas include moisture as well as sustenance hurst was already drinking we've been cursing you said ridley in answer to mrs elliot's kind inquiries about his wife you tourists eat up all the eggs helen tells me that's an eyesore too he nodded his head at the hotel disgusting luxury i call it we live like pigs in the drawing-room the food is not at all what it ought to be considering the price said mrs paley seriously but unless one goes to a hotel where is one to go to stay at home said ridley i often wish i had everyone ought to stay at home but of course they won't mrs paley conceived a certain grudge against ridley who seemed to be criticizing her habits after an acquaintance of five minutes i believe in foreign travel myself she stated if one knows one's native land which i think i can honestly say i do i should not allow anyone to travel until they had visited kent and dorsetshire kent for the hops and dorsetshire for its old stone cottages there is nothing to compare with them here yes i always think that some people like the flat and other people like the downs said mrs elliot rather vaguely hurst who had been eating and drinking without interruption now lit a cigarette and observed oh but we're all agreed by this time that nature's a mistake she's either very ugly appallingly uncomfortable or absolutely terrifying 
I don't know which alarms me most, a cow or a tree. I once met a cow in a field by night. The creature looked at me. I assure you it turned my hair grey. It's a disgrace that the animal should be allowed to go at large. And what did the cow think of him? Benning mumbled to Susan, who immediately decided in her own mind that Mr. Hurst was a dreadful young man, and that although he had such an air of being clever, he probably wasn't as clever as Arthur, in the ways that really matter. Wasn't it Wilde who discovered the fact that nature makes no allowance for hip-bones? inquired Hewling Elliot. He knew by this time exactly what scholarships and distinction Hurst enjoyed, and had formed a very high opinion of his capacities. But Hurst merely drew his lips together very tightly, and made no reply. Ridley conjectured that it was now permissible for him to take his leave. Politeness required him to thank Mrs. Elliot for his tea, and to add with a wave of his hand, you must come up and see us. The wave included both Hurst and Hewitt, and Hewitt answered, I should like it immensely. The party broke up, and Susan, who had never felt so happy in her life, was just about to start for her walk in the town with Arthur, when Mrs. Paley beckoned her back. She could not understand from the book how double demon patience is played and suggested that if they sat down and worked it out together, it would fill up the time nicely before dinner. End of chapter 9